day, you are the few and the proud. (laughs) Uh, We are back in the Ten Commandments. We have been in the Ten Commandments for five weeks. This is week six, so we are in the Sixth Commandment, because that's how the math adds up. Um, And I want to tell you this before we jump in. Um, And you guys might remember that um, as we've talked about the Ten Commandments, that we've talked about how these are not so much commands, that's, that's not necessarily a helpful word, they are ethics. That the law comes from these, but these commandments, they form kind of vow language in scripture. They're built around a ceremony sort of story, and they tell us what does it mean, what are the vows we make as people who covenant to God, as the followers of God, as members of his kingdom, what are the ethics that we follow, what are the vows that we make. Now sometimes, when we come to church and we hear a sermon, there is easy, obvious application. Do this, think this, believe this, repent of this, give this, sacrifice that. Sometimes when we go to scripture, there's an obvious thing that we need to do or apply. That is not this day. (laughs) Today, we are confronted with an ethic that forces us to wrestle. And I just want to tell you in advance, I don't have an easy application at the end of this sermon. I don't have three things for you to do. I'm not even sure that I can give you a clear and definite answer today. But what we will be doing is wrestling with something that requires us to consider, to pray, and to submit to the lordship of Christ through the word of God. Sound good? I know that sounds super exciting, doesn't it? Yeah, awesome. All right, we're reading one verse. Exodus chapter 20, we are going to read verse 13. It is four words. Are you ready? All right, a couple of you are. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says this, you shall not murder. Seems pretty obvious, right? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that uh, even as we wrestle with something that seems obvious, that your love doesn't fail, that we come under your love and your mercy and your forgiveness, we ask that we would be formed by your truth and your word today. As we regularly say, the only name that matters today is the name of Jesus. So God, any of my ideas that are not faithful to your word, let them be revealed so they can be forgotten. We don't come to hear from me. We come to be formed by your presence, to submit to your lordship through your word. Let that be what happens today, and let us leave with the name of Jesus as the name echoing in our minds and hearts. We love you. Amen. Uh, Something has happened recently that I did not expect, um, and it is that I have become a little bit of a gamer. Anybody else? Any gamers? Yeah, okay, a few, a few gamers. All right, I never really thought of myself as a gamer. Like, I, I mean, I was a, a middle school boy growing up in the early 2000s. I played Halo and, like, Tony Hawk Pro Skater and stuff. Uh, I was not good at it, though. And I say the word little bit of a gamer on purpose because I play video games by myself so that no one can prove to me that I'm not good at them. Um, my seven-year-old son already beats me enough times that my, you know, my glass... What if my image is being broken. I messed up that phrase, but it doesn't matter. Um, I recently got a game that I absolutely love, and it's pretty predictable for a formerly homeschooled Christian kid. I bought a Lord of the Rings game. Oh, 
Yeah, Lord of the Rings fans, anybody? Okay, awesome, awesome. Yes, it is a deep wormhole. If you are in the Tolkien universe, you are deep in it. And if you're not, then you have no idea what we're talking about. But I love this game. Listen, I have finally let go of the false idea that I am tough. Okay, listen, like when I was 25, I thought that I could be intimidating. I thought that if I worked out, you know, that I could be the type of person that people were like, oh man, don't mess with CJ. I finally let go of that. No one looks at me and they're like, man, that guy is scary, right? But in Mordor, in this Lord of the Rings game, orcs beware. I'm scary. Send five of them at me. Send 20 of them at me. I'm cleaving orcs everywhere. I mean, I'm just like, I am giving it to them. I, I am so good. I'm so tough in this game. It's awesome. I love it. And like, I've never had a video game that's hard for me to put down. Because like I said, I never really thought of myself as a gamer. But Jen's like, CJ, you need to quit playing video games. And I'm like, one more orc. Like, I mean, I'm just in it. And I, I was wondering, I was thinking about why is this game, because I've played other games, why is this game so much fun to me when other games haven't been as much fun? I was talking with Jen about it recently, and I think that it's because in the Lord of the Rings game that I'm playing, there is nothing morally ambiguous. This is not like one of the Grand Theft Auto games where you have to wrestle with making the right decision for the wrong reasons or the wrong decision for the right reasons and you have to do something bad because it's part of the game and you feel weird about it even though it's pretend. There's none of that. Okay, orcs are okay to kill and you don't have to feel bad about killing them. In this game, orcs were made by the evil lord to do evil things, and they are evil creatures. You can shoot them from a long way away. You can poison them. You can trick them. I'm going to stop talking about violence. Some of you guys are getting uncomfortable, but you don't have to feel bad about doing anything to the orcs because they are bad. You just go through the game killing orcs. That's what you do. You exterminate them. It's a good thing. There are less of them in the game. That is a positive thing. There's nothing morally ambiguous about that. And I think that part of the reason why games stories, movies. Part of the reason why we like to see the Jedi beat the Sith, because the Sith are corrupt. Part of the reason why we like to see droids get killed. We don't feel bad for battle droids. Part of the reason why we don't feel bad for Ursula, right, when Ariel defeats her, is because there's nothing like that in the real world. We love these stories where there's no moral ambiguity where there's an obvious right and an obvious wrong, there are heroes who are objectively good and there are villains who who are objectively bad. We like that because deep down, we know that life is significantly more complicated than that. That the people that we like to think of as villains aren't nearly as different from us as we like to imagine that they are. That the stories of humanity are significantly more complicated than that. As I was studying for for this sermon this week, I found um, a a Jewish scholar who was talking about one of the primary new ideas that the Old Testament, that the Torah introduced to the world And one of them was monotheism. It was a polytheistic world. People believed in many gods. And the Bible, the Old Testament, was one of the first, the the first document to introduce the idea of monotheism, of there being one God. But in addition to that, 
the new novel idea that was introduced by the Torah, by God in Scripture, was that every human being, as an individual, has infinite value. Up until this point, you were part of a collective exclusively. Your value came exclusively from that place, and, and an individual was only valuable as part of a community. But in Genesis chapter 1, we read this wild new idea that says that God says, let us make humanity in our image. In chapter 1, verse 26, and then verse 27, it says, so in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The individual, each individual has infinite worth. And this scholar went on to explain that there's, there's nothing greater than infinite. So it creates this extremely complex idea that we are all image bearers. Every human being bears the image of God. So every human being has infinite value, which means there's nothing bigger than infinite. So one of us is not less valuable than all of us. One can't be sacrificed for many. Everyone has value. Your, your value is not determined by your productivity in society. You're not more valuable because you're more intelligent or stronger or more attractive. You're not less valuable because you don't have the abilities other people do. The scriptures introduce this novel, complicated idea that every single human being, because they are made in the image of God, has infinite value. Now, very very soon in the story, this idea that comes that sin is entered into the world. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that the image of God is broken in us. We choose sin, and we are all broken, but we are all still image bearers. And what we all have in common, what every single person on earth has in common, is that we are made in the image of God and that that image has been broken. Which means at our core, we have significantly more in common than we have that separates us. Which means when we look at someone that we think of as an enemy, we look at someone who's a lot like us, which is a very uncomfortable idea, isn't it? It's pretty complicated. That is the complicated reality that God gives this ethic that says, you shall not murder. Or... You shall not kill, depending on the translation that you read. Because we are made in the image of God. Because that image has been broken and sin has entered into the world, the ethic of the kingdom becomes you shall not take a human life. You shall not end a human life because every human life is valuable. And into this complicated world in which we all know, I think if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we can all see that that line of villain, the line between villain, hero, and victim goes straight down through the middle of all of us. It's not nearly as obvious or easy to define as we would like for it to be. This ethic is introduced. Now, here's where we see something that's really important. There's a difference between an ethic and a law. Laws are significantly easier to follow 
than ethics. And the law comes later. The law is the application of the ethic. If you keep reading through the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you find significant law. And you find the the ethics that we see in these ten words, what's called the Decalogue in theology and church history, or what's called the ten words in Hebrew tradition. You find these ethics applied. But what we have here is an ethic. A law is easy to follow because a law draws a clear line in the sand. It makes a boundary. If there's a law, then you can easily see whether whether you've crossed it or not, and you can see who has broken it or not. Does that make sense? If there's a law, I can say, you broke the law, I didn't break the law, we are different. That's where the line is, so I can walk right up to the line, and I know exactly when I'm doing right and exactly when I'm doing wrong. An ethic is more complicated than that, because an ethic says, this is how the world is intended to be. This is how I am intended to behave. And Ethic requires me to look internally and ask the question, am I living in alignment with this ideal or this idea, whereas a law just says don't do this thing. It's a lot easier to follow a law than it is to follow an ethic. And this is where it gets uncomfortable because we, Christians especially, really like to take ethics and then project them as laws so that we can demonize the people that we disagree with. And just like everything in our modern world, it gets politicized. It gets cast on specific sides of political or theological lines. Have you ever noticed how quick we are to throw the M word around? The murder word around? If we find ourselves on a more conservative side of things, maybe politically, how easy it is for us to say, well, I know who the murderers are. Well, first off, it's the murderers. They're getting what they deserve. But second off, and I say this as someone who is pro-life, anyone who would consider abortion, we are quick to say that's where the line is. How could you end a human life? It's murder. But, But much slower to wrestle with the implications of something like, say, the death penalty or war. Or whether the place I spend my money directly contributes to pain, death, or or slavery across the globe. We're really quick to throw the word in one direction, but very slow to think about it in the other. And then if we find ourselves on the other side of the political spectrum, well, then we're really, really quick to accuse people who would be in favor of war. We're really quick to talk about how if you value life, you can't be in favor of the death penalty. We're really quick to throw around murder and violence and those words, but maybe very slow to imagine whether it's possible that every human life, no matter how long it's been a human life, is of infinite value. It's interesting, in Genesis chapter 2, the story continues. We see the story of Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are given a restriction. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think it's really interesting that we find ourselves continually demonizing one another and trying to define the line when the original restriction from humanity was Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's almost like Genesis chapter 2 was trying to tell us something. And then we do. Sin enters the world. And God says that 
the, the consequence of sin is death. We see that it's a consequence because God does not kill Adam and Eve immediately. Death is not immediately dealt to them. In fact, the first time death comes in the story is not even from old age. It's in Genesis chapter 4 when Adam and Eve's son Cain kill their other son Abel. The first time death manifests itself in the world is in the taking of a human life. And if you keep reading the story, what you read is that the violence multiplies and it extrapolates till you finally find yourself with characters in the story like Lamech who brag about their violence. Violence becomes the norm of society. It seems really uncomfortable for us in our world because we live in a, fairly, in a world that's fairly disconnected from violence, but 100 years ago, that certainly wasn't true. And in most of the world today, that's certainly not true. We don't have to come face-to-face to to violence, most of us in our daily lives, but for much of human existence, survival was not a guarantee. We regularly witnessed violence and death and destruction. So God says, you shall not murder. Because it's based on this storyline that says any time a human life ends, it's the result of sin. Now, I want to be clear here because we're getting into complicated waters. So this, this is a, a complicated discussion. I want to be very clear when I say that we do not mean that something like cancer is the result of an individual's sin. All right, God does not punish me with an illness because I make a mistake. What we mean when we say that the, the the result of sin is death, that the ending or taking of a human life is always the result of sin. What we mean is that the world in which we live in is broken, in which accidents and illnesses and unforeseen things happen that take human life all the time. We also know that we live in a world where people intend and intentionally do violence and premeditated violence towards one another, where sometimes the ending of a human life is the result of the brokenness of our experience the brokenness of our world, and sometimes the ending human life is the result of a direct decision towards sin. But what we can confidently say is that the result of sin is death. So when death comes as the result of sin, Paul would say it like this in the New Testament. He would say the wages of sin is death. In other words, when you work for sin, sin pays death. Death is always the result of sin, directly or indirectly. Now, I've said this before, I am not a Hebrew scholar. So when I, when I study uh, a text like this, I do my best to read a lot of scholars. I've been trained in how to identify individual words and the nuance and complication of Hebrew versus English, but I'm not a scholar who knows all of the ways that, that Hebrew works. So I've spent a lot of, I've spent hours this week studying this text to see if there was an obvious application. Because I would love for there to be an obvious application. I would love to be able to get done with this sermon and say, as long as you don't murder anyone, you don't have to worry or to say violence is always bad, or something that was easy to apply. I would love to be able to do that. But I spent hours studying this word, and the best I can come up with is I'm not sure. And scholars don't seem to be sure either. It's a complicated word. Here's what we know. This word that's translated kill in some translations, especially older translations like the King James Version, is translated murder in other translations. This word is always used about human-on-human killing. It's never used about animals. It's never even used about war. It's always used about a human being that kills another human being. Sometimes this word literally means murder. 
Sometimes this word is used to mean something that's much more like manslaughter, the accidental ending of a human life. Sometimes this word is translated assassination. Sometimes it's used to mean execution. It always means human-on-human violence. But it's a complicated word. It would be a lot easier if we could just say this means don't murder. Do not premeditate it. Do not premeditate and kill another human being. But it seems maybe to mean something closer to homicide. Hom like hominid, human, aside like pesticide, like the ending of a human life, a human ending, a human life. Thou shalt not take a human life. Thou shalt not end a human life. Why? Because that human life is made in the image of God and deserves honor. Because that human life is of infinite value. Because I cannot, I cannot end the image of God to protect the image of God. I can't attack the image of God to defend the image of God. It's complicated. Because everyone I look at is made in the image of God. Villain or victim or both. They're made in the image of God. And it's complicated. As I was researching this week, I studied um, some other uh, Hebrew and Jewish scholars and what what the classic ideas of this this mean. And there are a couple quotes that I think are going to show how complicated this is. Um, They're going to be up on the screen. The first comes from a Jewish professor named... I don't remember. All right, there it is. Gerald Blidstein. He's talking about this word, and he's talking about the difference between Hebrew and Jewish thought. He says that no word for the spilling of human blood could bear a less prohibitive denotation than any other word. The Western thought distinguishes at a basic indelible level, at the level of the word between homicide and murder. Jewish usage does not make this distinction. The verbal integrity of the spilling of human blood is never violated. Homicide is not splintered into the justifiable and to the criminal. I realize that that is a complicated run-on sentence or two. What that means is that in Jewish thought, the difference between accidental and intentional killing is not differentiated. Killing is killing. That we talk about justifiable and unjustifiable murder, or justifiable and unjustifiable killing... The Jewish language talks about killing and always talks about it as a bad thing. It doesn't differentiate at the level of language. There's another scholar who said this. Actually, skip on to the next slide. There's a, there's a verse in the book of Numbers that, differ, that makes this really clear. This verse in Numbers chapter 35, verse 30 says this. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. So what this seems to be about is capital punishment. It's about executing someone who commits a murder. Now, here's what's important. When you read this sentence, the words put to death and murder are the same word in Hebrew. And it's the same word that's translated here as kill or murder. So when it says do not kill... That's the same word. So if you were to read this very literally in a way that doesn't really make sense in English, but it would be a very literal translation of the Hebrew, it would say anyone who kills a person is to be murdered as a murderer. So there's another Jewish scholar who makes this claim. Can you go back, Stephen? I put these in the wrong order. He says, we could stay with the other scholar, Blidstein, that the lack of clarity of the root, that is the Hebrew word there. I don't know how to pronounce it in Hebrew, but that's what it is that the lack of clarity of the root is meant to teach us to abhor all killing of human beings. In other words, that sentence is supposed to make us really uncomfortable because 
we believe that Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit did not actually use these complicated words, that we're supposed to read that sentence and be forced to wrestle with the fact that any time a human life is ended, it's a bad thing. It's always the same kind of killing. So, here's where that leads me. I don't know. I wish that I could give you a really simple, easy application from this. I wish that I could tell you, like I said before, all mur- only murder is wrong. Self-defense is fine. War is fine when it's justified. I wish I could tell us that. I don't know. I wish I could say that all that Christians have to be nonviolent if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, but I don't know. Listen, I know some of you are sitting here in this room and you're thinking, CJ, okay, what are you going to do about somebody like Hitler? Aren't there times in the world where there is a great evil that has to be ended, that we have to do something to stop? What are you going to do if someone is attacking your family? What are you going to do if someone's directly doing harm to your family? Are you saying you're just going to let it happen instead of harming someone who's made in the image of God? Doesn't it make sense that we would defend those who are voiceless? Doesn't it make sense that we would defend those that we love? Doesn't it make sense that violence, even though it's never to be desired, is sometimes necessary? Listen, if that's you, instinctually, I believe you. Instinctually, I agree with you. That has been my perspective for most of my life, um, that sometimes violence is never to be desired, but sometimes it's necessary. And that makes a lot of sense, and you can build a really strong biblical argument for that. But if I can be honest, I'm just not sure that's what the story of Scripture teaches. I'm not sure if we can follow the Jesus who said, forgive them for they, not know what, they do not know what they're doing to his murderers while also doing harm for any reason to someone who bears the image of God. There are others of us in this room who are thinking, CJ, obviously Christians have to be nonviolent. We have to be pacifists. I read a book this weekend, or about half of a book, actually, to be honest. I read about half of a book this week about Christian nonviolence, building an intentional, academic, biblical case for Christian nonviolence. And I read it because that has not been my perspective historically, and I wanted to study Scripture to the best of my ability, and it's a really compelling case. And some of you are thinking, CJ, biblically, you cannot take up the sword. You cannot inflict harm on a human being. As a follower of Jesus, we have to be nonviolent. And you're thinking the only way to end the, the cycle of violence in the world is to refuse to participate in it. Listen, I love that. I think that's beautiful. I think that's an incredibly beautiful vision for what it means to follow in the kingdom of God. I think you can make a very compelling biblical argument for that stance. I'm just not sure that the story of scripture teaches that. I don't know. It's complicated. I wish I could say, here's the obvious answer, but I couldn't be honest about scripture if I didn't tell us it's complicated. Here's what I know. I know that scripture teaches us that the ending of a human life is always bad. Whether it feels necessary, whether it feels like it's the only possible solution or not, it is never something to be celebrated. It is never something to be desired. Scripture teaches us that if there is a time in which violence is the only option, that that exists because we live in a broken, fallen world and that the way of Jesus calls us into something better and we should pray and long and dream about a day when violence is never the option, when human life is never taken because every human being is made in the image of God. 
And some of us, maybe you've served in the military. This is a really complicated thing to talk about. Some of us, um, maybe you've got friends and family and people that you love that have served and you know have taken life and you know that they love, they love Jesus and you know that they are formed in the image of God. And this is a complicated thing to even think about. The other thing that I know for sure is that as followers of Jesus, we are people who refuse to take the simple way out. We are people who refuse to take the obvious answer, but we do the work of wrestling with the complicated idea. For too long, Christians have settled for the most obvious or the easiest solution rather than admitting, I don't know, I'm not sure, but I surrender to the way of Jesus, whatever that means. We have to be people who wrestle with Scripture. Remember the the story of Jacob and how he got his name Israel, where he wrestled with God. The whole idea, the name of the people of Israel is those who wrestle with God, those who are willing to do the hard work of following in a way that's complicated complicated and difficult, but who come under the authority of King Jesus. That is who Christians are. We are people who submit to the lordship of Jesus, whatever that lordship means, and we are willing to wrestle and to be wrong and to repent when we realize that we are wrong. We do not take the easy way out. We do not cling to our old way of thinking, but we are willing to always submit our way of thinking to the lordship of Jesus as revealed in scripture. Amen? This is what it means to follow Jesus. And the implications of, of this command are complicated and expansive. Because the implications of a command that says, every time a human life is taken, it is bad. Ha- that has implications for everything from abortion to the death penalty to war to where I buy my clothes and whether there are people enslaved in that place, Jesus extrapolates this idea, and he says, you have heard it said, do not kill, but I tell you, do not even hate. Do not, do not call your brother a fool. Why? Because that would be holding harmful intention towards an image bearer, because you can't love the image of God while you hate the image of God, and everybody bears the image of God. You can't receive the forgiveness from God while refusing to give forgiveness to his image. Fortunately, God's forgiveness covers all of our sin and all of our shortcomings. So that even when we make mistakes and fall short in our forgiveness of others, even when we choose the wrong way, his forgiveness is extended. If you look throughout church history, you find people who picked up the sword and people who refused to, all who followed Jesus and surrendered to his way. It's a complicated reality. But the implications of this are vast and we have to wrestle with them. We have to be people who don't take the easy way out, but who are willing to say, are there ethical implications for where I shop, or are there not? And don't demonize people who disagree with us, but wrestle with the implications of that. We have to be people who are willing to wrestle with the implications of violence wherever it comes. We don't have to be people who all agree on the answer, but we have to be people who wrestle with it. We have to be people who do not speak cavalierly about the ending of human life. Do not speak lightly about it because we realize that in Scripture, every time a human life is ended, it is the result of sin. I have just one application for this. In 
one of the things that I think is missing from the modern Christian world is the idea of representative repentance or community repentance. We live in a highly individualistic society. That's not surprising to anyone. Most of us know that. Our society is highly individualized. Um, so we really like the idea of repenting for our own sins so that everyone else is wrong and we're right. We do not really like the idea of acknowledging that we are part of the culture that we live in, so we are part of the wrongs of our culture. But all throughout Scripture, we see this idea of the people of God who repent on behalf of the people of God. Not that my repentance necessarily brings forgiveness or something to somebody else, but that I acknowledge and confess those sins and invite God to bring transformation, that I mourn and grieve the sins, not just of myself, but of my people. You see this famously in Isaiah, I believe, chapter 6, where Isaiah says to the Lord, I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. He's acknowledging the sins of his people, not just himself. And I think no matter what your perspective is as you wrestle with the ethical implications of you shall not kill, I think the right thing to do is to confess that it is because of sin that we live in a world where violence is ever an option, let alone the only option. And it should bring grief to our hearts anytime we hear of violence, that human life ended. We should be people who mourn the fact that the death penalty ever has to happen, no matter how we feel about it. Because I can't, I don't think I can give you a way to feel about it based on Scripture. I know some people make it, make it sound really obvious. I personally don't think it's that obvious. But I do know that it's because of sin that it ever has to happen, if it does have to happen. It's because of sin that there is ever violence. And we can be people who choose to not escape from the pain of the world around us, to not live completely disconnected, but who acknowledge that There is pain and brokenness in the world. And we can go to God and we can say, God, I am sorry that my people are people of violence. I'm sorry that my people have done this. Please bring change. Prince of peace, come. We can be people who cry out, no matter our theological opinion, Prince of peace, come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. Because in your kingdom, peace reigns. Amen? We can be people of repentance, personally for our own sins, but also corporately of the sins of our culture and of our people. And in that way, we do not accommodate the evil of the world, but we acknowledge it and take it to the Lord, inviting him to transform it. Let's pray. God, sometimes I wish you would have made this easier. Sometimes I wish you would have made it so we didn't have to wrestle. But God, I trust that because you are good, that it is good to wrestle with complicated ideas. I trust that because you are good, that your way is good, no matter how it confronts my way. God, I trust that your truth is true and trustworthy, even if I disagree with it or don't like it or don't understand it. God, I ask that you would make us people who no matter how we feel about these complicated ideas that we submit to the Prince of Peace, 
that we are people who bring peace, bring your shalom, bring your goodness to the world around us. God, I ask that you would make us people who do not settle for the obvious or easy answer, but are willing to do the complicated work of wrestling through hard questions with your people in submission to your lordship and in agreement with your word. God, make us people who embody your kingdom, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. If it is in any way up to us, God, make us people who bring your kingdom and your will here like it is there. We love you, Jesus. Amen.